and I appreciate so much the people who play and sing uh, each week here uh, and lead this this church in praise each week. They do a fantastic job, and uh, yeah, do appreciate it. I really don't have anything to do with that. That's uh, it's all done by the team, and uh, I just I just come and sing. That's all I do. So. Turn with me to John chapter one. <clears throat> John chapter one. Verse 19, and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then are you, Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And so they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. We've been studying this passage, this is the third week from verse 19, and the one thing that stands out in all of this, really, even from the very beginning, is the humility of John the Baptist. He was, he was not one to, to bring accolades upon himself, but his humility certainly shines through the darkness of the Pride and self-interest of the Pharisees. They demanded an answer as to who he was. He denied that he was anyone of any kind of importance. Which is a good, by the way, which is a good, uh, a good way to view oneself. I'm, I'm nobody really important. That keeps you from thinking too much of yourself. And believe me, it's easy to think much of ourselves. He denied that he was uh, of any importance. He didn't even realize that he was one of the most important people that would ever live. He knew and quickly announced that he was not the Messiah. He announced again that he was not Elijah, but he did come in the power and spirit of Elijah He was not the prophet that Moses prophesied about, but he knew that that prophet was here. 
and very near. All John would really attest to was that he was a voice. He was the voice that was to cry in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. He was a heralder to warn people that the kingdom of God was very near. Now, John, of course, is quoting here Isaiah 40, verse 3 through 5. Uh, as we noted last week in this passage, it is, a, it is a, an extremely important um, prophecy, that of Isaiah. It reads like this. A voice cries. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now, you'll notice that in your text that it it starts with, the quote starts with, uh, prepare the way. But the actual quote from Isaiah is, in the wilderness, prepare the way. Why would he say such a thing? Was it because John came from the wilderness? Uh, well, partly. <clears throat> But more probably it is because every single individual's life is a wilderness. It's a wilderness of sin and and disobedience. It's It's a wilderness of pushing God right out of the picture altogether. We see that so clearly in our day. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain will be made low. Even the the uneven ground will become level. The rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. That does not happen. The glory of the Lord does not happen in the lives of people until the fallow ground of their lives is plowed up and made level so that the Lord can come. glory of the Lord shall be revealed. This is what he said in chapter 1 verse 14, wasn't it? And we beheld his glory. And all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And when God speaks, that settles it. There's nothing left to add or take away. It has been decided. It's enough. Now, if you'll remember that Israel had been in a spiritual wilderness of dead religion, having no love relationship with Jehovah, and, and the danger was absolutely real for Israel. And they had become devoid of any true knowledge of God. And when, when, a, when a society becomes devoid of the knowledge of God, what happens? They make themselves God. And they find all kinds of things to worship other than God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Israel did not realize that they were on the brink of eternal danger. Jeremiah 23, verse 33 When one of this people or a prophet or a priest asks you, what is the burden of the Lord? You shall say to them, you are the burden. And I will cast you off, declares the Lord. 
But the burden of the Lord you shall mention no more. For the burden, get this now, for the burden is every man's own word. And you pervert the words of the living God, the Lord of hosts. What is he saying? He's saying that people make their own word that of the Lord. And God says, I won't have that. I'll cast you off. I'll spew you out. John came, essentially, shouting that message. And they didn't particularly care for it. That is, the religious leaders. He called on men to repent and to listen to God's messenger who was going to come after him. His message was one of urgency. For no one has any promise of tomorrow. See, we don't think about that, do we? People don't think about, they say, oh, tomorrow, I'll do that tomorrow. Well, I'll do that the next day. I'll do that next week. There's no promise of next week. There's no promise of tomorrow. There's no promise of the next hour. For a heart can stop beating in a single second. Every time you pass someone on the road, you're 18 to 20 inches away from death. Boast not about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Proverbs 27. This was John's task to bring about, to bring to these blind and spiritually starving people the knowledge of God. That's what he was given the task to do. He was called to do this out of his mother's womb. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1 real quickly. Look at verses 30, uh, look at verses 76 to 79. Here we have here we have Zechariah's prophecy after the angel spoke to him. And Zechariah is actually now speaking to his child, John the Baptist, in the womb before he's born. Listen to this. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. That was his task. To give them the knowledge of God and about salvation because of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet. On the way of peace. John's preaching. John's warnings. John's what appears to be a, a severely harsh attack. Was not scare tactics at all. It was, it was warnings of reality. And if people refuse to repent of their sins, they cannot be saved. And they will spend eternity in hell paying the debt of their own sins as a result. And this is what John meant when he said, make straight the way of the Lord. 
make straight his path. Now most of us in here, I don't know everyone as much as I do some others, but most of us in here have made, that path has already been made straight and the Lord has already come to us. And we know him in his grace and we know him in his goodness and mercy. He has given us his peace to know that we will be with him. But not everyone is in that place. Not everyone understands that. What a stark reality to miss it. And wake up in punishment. Clear the way for the Lord. That's the message. If you haven't cleared the way for Him, clear the way. There are those who misunderstand this. What it means to clear the way. And so they they take mere human action rather than a godly response. This was the error of the Essenes. The Sanhedrin was made up of three groups. The Sadducees, which were the, we would call them the conservative group, but they were very liberal politically. And then there were the Pharisees. They were the religiously liberal group, but were very stringent against Rome. And then there were the Essenes. The Essenes was the smallest group. But the Essenes had the wrong idea about what it meant to clear the way for the Lord. This group of Jews were the ones that produced the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they applied Isaiah 40 verse 3 to themselves by isolating themselves from the rest of the world in order to ensure for themselves their own salvation. They felt that if they could isolate themselves from the world and its evil, that that would be enough to save them. Today, we call this religious moralism. Moralism never saved anyone. Practices laws and moral laws to procure favor with God. When in fact no one could ever do anything to procure favor with God. No good deed. No isolation. No deprivation. Could make anyone be right with God. And so John came with this message and he pointed the people, to the only one who could answer man's sin problem. But to simply demand fallen humanity, fallen humans, to do this in their own lives is an impossibility. They can't and they won't do it. It takes the work of a sovereign God and he does that through the gospel. The, prep, the power for such spiritual preparation is found only in the preaching of the gospel as a means of grace to the sinner. Without the gospel being preached, 
no one is saved. Because that's how God ordained this to happen. Through the preaching of the gospel. Therefore, John came crying, shouting this message. Now, that brings us to verse 24. And verse 24 simply says, Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. That is a parenthetical statement. And it's, it's placed there for clarity. Because John has referred to them in verse 19 as the Jews. And we talked about that. How the, the, the phrase, the Jews... Most of the time speaks of the Jewish religious establishment, the Sanhedrin. The word Pharisee means to separate. And so to live a different life than the rest of the general public. Pharisees were very very legal, very rule-oriented. Robert Stein writes in the New American Commentary, the Pharisees were the most influential of the three major Jewish sects, the other two being the Sadducees and the Essenes. We read first of them in the 2nd century B.C., In contrast to the Sadducees, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection, the existence of angels and demons, predestination as well as free will, and the validity of both the written and oral law. Politically, they were more conservative than the Sadducees, but religiously they were more liberal due to their acceptance of oral law. In other words, they were sort of like the Catholics who, who have all this, all this other, uh, law that came down by word of of men and they make it equal with scripture. The Pharisees were not the leading men of the Sanhedrin. That was the Sadducees. They were the most influential group in the religious establishment of Israel, however. John, in fact, the priest, the high priest, Caiaphas, was a Sadducee. John adds this parenthesis in verse 24 to highlight their wickedness. He wants us to know just what this group was like. They needed salvation. And John, John minced no words telling them what they were like. Brood of vipers. Whitewashed walls. We see later that though they needed salvation, there would be no salvation for the Pharisees as a, as a group. There would only be salvation for a very few. We, we know Nicodemus. Joseph of Arimathea, and a few others that it says believed on him that are unnamed. But as a group, they rejected him and 
called for his death. They asked him, verse 25, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? Now these Jews had asked John question after question, and now they leveled their attack in a, in a most in another most vehement question. It doesn't look like it on the surface. It just sounds inquisitive to us, like, well, well, then if you're not them, who are you? But that's not the way this is asked. Literally, this is a question that has in it the the substance of an accusation. In other words, they are asking, how dare you? How dare you come baptizing? Who do you think you are? That's a little different than just, who are you? Or it could be said, who gave you the authority to baptize? Because he hadn't gotten it from the Jews. The same thing happened to Jesus over and over again. You remember as he cleansed the temple? Who gave you the authority to come in here and do this? And so it wasn't his preaching necessarily, John's preaching that caused worry for them. It was the baptizing because he had not given permission to baptize. And baptism, I'm going to look at this in just a second here, but baptism was a sign of conversion. It was all the way back in Jewish history. His voice was not the voice that they expected or wanted to hear. His practices were not sanctioned by the Jews. Now, just a word about baptism and the Jewish understanding of it. Baptism among the Jewish people was not an unknown thing. There were Jewish groups that practiced what was called proselyte baptism of Gentiles who converted to Judaism. And whenever a Gentile would convert, they would have a a baptism to show that they would to show that this person had left their gentile their gentile standing and joined Judaism so full immersion which is what the word baptizo means full immersion with circumcision and a sincere heart meant salvation that was the jewish understanding It was also many times self-administered. People would baptize themselves as a sign to show personal righteousness as they waited for the end time Messiah to appear. In fact, many wealthy Jewish homes had had uh, what they called uh, pools that they would baptize themselves in. Immerse themselves in. Many times it was a daily occurrence. Ritual immersions. 
These immersions were known as ritual washings. So baptism was a distinctly Jewish thing. D.A. Carson writes, One of the things that characterized the baptism of John the Baptist is that he himself administered it. It may even be, it may even be that the authority implicit in such an innovative step triggered the assumption in the minds of at least some Pharisees that John's baptism was an end time rite administered by an end time figure with great authority. That's what they were afraid of. They were afraid someone was going to take away their power. Isn't that what they said of Jesus? Look. The whole world is following after him and he will uproot us and take away our power, our authority. The Jews could not stand by and watch someone do something that infringed on their authority. But John was not interested in taking away the authority of the Jews. He was interested, like the Old Testament prophets, in calling a people from among the Jewish nation whose righteousness exceeded that of the Pharisees. He says in Matthew chapter 3, I baptize you with water for what? For repentance. Jesus came along and said this in Matthew 5. For I tell you, unless your righteousness, he's speaking to the Pharisees here, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That message went out to the people. You you cannot be like the Pharisees. So John answered them in the next verse, verse 26. I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Again, we see the humility of John as he draws attention away from himself to the one he came to announce. He did not try to defend himself. He did not argue or debate with them about his reasons or his actions. Neither did he diminish his reasons or actions. However, he did address the limitations of his work and ministry by alluding to the fact that water can really save no one. Now, we all know what happens When water is left to its own. I have a little swimming pool in the backyard for the grandkids to swim in. But I'm constantly having to add chlorine to it to keep it from going bad. And if I just wait just a little too long in these hot days, what happens to it? It starts to go bad and it grows grows algae and it turns green. And given long enough, it would turn brown. No one would want to get into it. Water in itself saves nobody. I know people who bank on the fact that they've been baptized. 
And they believed that that water did something to them. Water does nothing to you. It won't even take the dirt off of your body in a single dip. He said, I baptize you in water. Actually, it should be the word in instead of with. I baptize you in water. The act was only symbolic. It was a spiritually symbolic cleansing that that showed the real matter, which was the spirit working in the human heart. Because when a person is saved, the Spirit of God enters into them and they are immersed with the Spirit completely in their soul, in their spirit. This is what baptism pictures. And so, John is is following the pattern of the Old Testament prophets which spoke of the cleansing that would come with the Messiah when He came. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. I will sprinkle sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. You remember when Moses dipped the, the hyssop in the blood, and he sprinkled it across the people? The blood, the blood itself didn't cleanse them. It was their faith in what that blood represented. But now you come to the New Testament and it's actually literally the blood of Christ which is applied to us that cleanses us. Ezekiel 36, 33, Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from your all of your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt. Ezekiel 37, they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with their transgressions, but I will save them from their backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. And over and over again, he says it, Zechariah 13, 1, on that day shall the fountains be opened of the house of David and inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and uncleanness. This is what it pictured. This is what the Jews understood. The Jewish people baptized converts from Gentiles, but John was baptizing Jews. Now, wait a minute. Why did Jews need to be baptized? They're God's chosen people. You're baptizing Jews. That was not done before. Except to themselves as a, as a ritual. Why did they need to be baptized? However, there were many people of Israel that acknowledged their sin and made profession as to the preparation of the true Messiah when John preached and baptized them. They were looking forward to the one who would come. John was preaching repentance for sin For the forgiveness of sin in the one who would come after him. We see that very clearly in the next text. His statement 
I baptize with or in water speaks of the temporary nature of why he was there. There was a great difference between what he was doing and what the Messiah would do. John could only do that which was physical and emblematic. Jesus would do that which is spiritual and out of the reach of any mortal man. It could say, I only baptize with water. That would clear the matter a great deal. I'm only baptizing with water. Wait a minute, that means that the water itself is nothing. Doesn't do anything except show a picture. And so, it brings us back to the central purpose for the forerunner. Why was he there? He was to point people to Christ who was the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. Or baptize people in the Holy Spirit. The only, only the Messiah himself could do that. Matthew 3.11 states it. So now notice his statement has two parts. First, there is a clear announcement that the Messiah would come and they did not know him. They didn't know who he was. They could not discern who he was. In fact, they couldn't even discern who John was. And it was clear from Isaiah's prophecy that he was the forerunner. I will send my messenger before my face. But they didn't see it. They could not discern it. They could not understand it. Further, they would never come to know him. Jesus said in John chapter 10... To the Pharisees, you will die in your sins. Horrible thing to have to say to anyone. But it didn't seem to bother them or affect them. Jesus said of them, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. John 8, 24. This is truly, this is certainly true as well of Gentile sinners who refuse to believe. Spiritual blindness and deafness was not only a national Israel problem, it was a human problem. Second, is the lessening of himself as he speaks of Christ. He said, even he who comes after me the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now in our culture, we could not even begin to understand how what John is saying unless we research uh, unless we researched it from that particular time. So let's give a little historical context to it. It was the duty of the lowest slaves. Now slaves had a sort of a hierarchy. They were not all on the same level or par. There were some slaves who were uh, stewards of the master, who, who took care of his business, kept his finances, looked after the properties he owned. Then there were others who worked in the fields, and and then there were others who did such tasks as no one would ever want to do. 
It was the lowest of the low slave that was to come and greet people or or come and meet people, guests, as they came into the house. And they would they would untie their sandals from their feet and take off those sandals and they would wash the feet of the guest. Because people wore sandals in those days. The, the roads were dusty and their feet would just... You ever see little kids in the summertime has been out playing barefooted in the dirt and you ever you ever say to them hey you go wash those feet you're not getting on my furniture until you wash those feet well that's what it's like everybody had dirty feet walk the roads you get dirty the slave the lowest slave was to bring water take off the sandals and wash the feet of the guest. In fact, this was such a these, this was such a low task that Jewish Jewish teachers and leaders were forbidden to demand this act from their students. John is saying, in essence, I'm just a slave. I'm just the lowest of the low slave. I'm so low that I'm not worthy to untie his sandals and wash his feet. I'm, I'm too unworthy for that. Paul alludes to this in Acts 13. Turn with me to Acts 13. It's a little lengthy passage here. Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 16. Verse 25 being the key in the passage. Paul is at the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia. And he stands up to speak. And this is what he says. So Paul, verse 16. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said... Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, He gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king. Of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? 
I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming. The sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent this message of salvation. If John does anything, he reminds us that we are all in a ministry for the common good of each other and for the glory of God. With no differentiation amongst people. Or people groups. This is why we have been bestowed with spiritual gifts. As he says in 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Peter 4. Listen to it. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Why? For the common good. The common good of what? The common good of the church. This is where we use our spiritual gifts. Right here. 1 Peter 4, each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of the varied grace of God. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves (coughs) as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. (coughs) So when you use your gift... Whatever gift that is, spiritual gift that God has given you, you use it in the church. The common good, it has the effect for common good, and God is glorified in it. (coughs) To Him belong glory and dominion forever, speaking of God. All of these events that came to pass in this passage took place At Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. If you look at the map, you'll find that Bethany is southeast of Jerusalem, just past or crossed over the Jordan on the road to Jericho. We know Bethany best as the place where Lazarus was raised from the dead, where Mary and Martha served the Lord, People came from all over Jerusalem and Judea. About 40 miles. 40 miles. Now think about that. It'd be like you walking to the cities to see a man baptizing in the river and listen to him preach. They came from all over Jerusalem and Judea. No wonder the Jews took notice. Who is this guy? He was a nobody, a nobody with a great message, and he introduced them to the one who could save them from their sins. We see that in the next passage. On the next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God. That's going to be an interesting passage. Well, God bless you, folks. I'm going to stop right right there. Because I didn't prepare any more, any further.
but um, we will carry on as the Lord gives us grace and as he gives us time. All right. I really don't have any announcements to make um, except for the carnival at the Nelsons on the 17th from 11 to 3. Proceeds will go to help. What is the, the center again called? Terabith. Terabithia? Terabinth. Rest, uh, yeah. It's a place for women to go who have been caught up in uh, human trafficking, sex trafficking, and uh, it's a good cause. And so I hope that you'll come out and and have some fun and some fellowship there next Saturday afternoon, morning and afternoon. And uh, all the proceeds of, from that will go to that shelter for these women. It's a huge problem. Did you know that Minnesota is number two in the nation for sex trafficking? You want to know who's first? Michigan. You want to know why? Because we're on the Canadian border. We're the most populous states on the Canadian border. It's harder to get in to the eastern states on the Canadian border than it is here. So it's a good cause, and I hope that you'll support it. Well, that's all that I have this morning, and uh, God bless you for coming. Uh, I hope that you've been blessed with the singing and with the with the uh, ministry of the word this morning. And uh, don't forget to leave your offerings and, and uh, worship the Lord with your with your giving. And so I'll ask uh, Brother Rolf if you'll come back, please, and take our family prayer time and requests and. Then Rolf will close our service in prayer.